I feel like these past several months have been just like one long haul flight. The mm. minute I start to relax on a plane, if I feel a little bump, I remember I'm on a flight again and, oh, I could die at any second. And that's what it, uh, that's what this feels like to me. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today, actor and travel writer Andrew McCarthy comes back on the show. You might recall that in season one, Andrew and I talked about how travel changed his life and also what it's been like to be something of a celebrity ever since he starred in movies like Pretty in Pink and Mannequin back in the day. You know, Andrew and I were exchanging emails about this podcast a few weeks ago, and after considering various travel themes for a new episode, I ultimately convinced him to do the interview using what is known as the Proust Questionnaire. I actually discovered this set of interview questions while researching this podcast when, in an attempt to learn how to pronounce the name of Norwegian writer Carl Ove Knausgaard, sorry if I'm still not saying that right, I saw Knausgaard answering the Proust questionnaire on YouTube and did some research into what exactly the Proust questionnaire is. I explained this in a bit more detail to Andrew McCarthy in the interview itself, but in short, it's a list of questions that the French writer Marcel Proust first answered as part of a Victorian-era parlor game back when he was 14 years old. In more recent years, it's become a popular way to interview famous and notable people in a more timeless and universal way that isn't pegged to promoting a book or a movie. The late James Lipton of the American interview series Inside the Actors Studio called this list of questions, quote, a verbal Rorschach test that told the viewer more about the respondent than an entire hour of questioning, end quote. Now, I'm not sure that the conversation with Andrew McCarthy amounts to a Rorschach test, in part because I didn't ask all of the Proust questions, and I did manage to pose a lot of follow-up questions that aren't on the Proust questionnaire, but it was fun to have a conversation with the guy who people have been formally interviewing since he was a teenager, and hence it ends up being kind of a meta-interview that unpacks the idea of an interview even as we try to have one. I'll admit it's not a terribly smooth interview, at least on my part, but that was all part of the fun. In a way, this episode is very much in keeping with the premise of Deviate, since our conversation goes all over the place, from what life has been like for him ever since his TV work stopped back in March due to pandemic concerns, to what he regrets, to what he fears, to what he values in friendships, to when and why he lies, to, yes, what his favorite color is. We also talk about F. Scott Fitzgerald's novel, The Great Gatsby, as well as Andrew's inclusion in the quote-unquote brat pack of iconic young movie stars of the 1980s and the memoir he's writing about that time in his life. After we were done with the interview, Andrew actually emailed me a quote from Gatsby that resonates when he looks back on that time in his life. It's a quote describing the character Tom Buchanan as, quote, a national figure in a way, one of those men who reached such an acute limited excellence at 21 that everything afterwards sours of anticlimax, end quote. Andrew told me that at a certain point in his own life, he thought that might be true of himself had travel, among other things, not saved him. Our conversation starts on a lighter note when we talk about Andrew's appearance in the Weekend at Bernie's meme that went around when North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un went missing back in April. Let's listen in. It's funny, I saw you in this Kim Jong-un meme that went around. 
Um, <laughs> I know. Funny so, that one. I love that one. Like every time somebody is sick or like you know pretends they're not sick when they are, or like that time that Hillary fell down and stuff like you know they they bring this one out and it works every time. <laughs> I had no idea. It's I just saw it and it just cracked me up. It's like a, a weekend at Bernie's picture with uh, with you and, yeah. and Kim Jong Un, yeah. and I thought, huh, I know that guy. This this must be a part of. Uh, a, a part of uh, just your yearly cycle whenever somebody... It, it is, exactly. <laughs> well, that, that sort of ties into what I was going to ask you at the meta level. Just you've been, uh, you were successful so early, you've been a public figure for a long time. So you must have a really old relationship with interviews. But at the same time, you know, just based on your on your travel book, um, you don't really, you, you sort of cast yourself as a self-conscious introverted person who might be less comfortable being glib in interviews. So what has your relationship to interviews been over the last 30 or 40 years? Jesus, you make me sound old there, dude. Uh, <laughs> well, it's changed certainly very much in that at first I had no idea. I mean, it's funny because I'm, I'm actually just written and I'm editing right when, before this comes, I'm, I wrote a memoir uh, of my Brat Pack days that uh, will come out next year. And so I was just editing it and I was going through it and looking at how I used to do interviews and stuff. And I mean, I was, there's one interview that's on YouTube that I, I tried to watch, which was just terrifying of the premiere pretty in pink when I was completely drunk and terrified and I could hardly form a sentence. And it, Andrew, did you actually go to your high school prom? No, no. Why not? I couldn't get a date. I was just, I was so <laughs> just traumatized. I had no, you know, someone said, didn't you have media training and things? And it's like, no, we didn't do things like that back then. And I didn't know what a soundbite was. I didn't know how to make my answer in a concise sentence. And that hasn't changed as you can hear. But, <laughs> uh, you know, so at first I was very sort of traumatized by interviews and felt self-conscious and sort of felt like, why would you want to hear what I have to say? I just felt sort of ashamed. And then uh, I got fairly polished at it in the sense of giving answers. And then I think at a certain point I stopped caring. Hmm. And so then it became interesting because then I would just tell the, <laughs> the truth, you know, so it's changed over the years. So now I just sort of talk. <laughs> awesome. Um, do you have a favorite, like from, from, you know, your sort of peak self-conscious uh, celebrity days before you transitioned into travel writing and stuff, do you have a favorite interview where you felt like you really evoked something true because last time you talked with me for this podcast, you talked about you had these there I am moments where you sort of recognized yourself through travel mm, or through writing. Yeah. Do, do you feel like you ever really evoked something really raw and honest in an interview or was it always somewhat tied into performance? Well, I don't think I, you know, I, they usually don't go that deep anyway. The questions are not very probing and they don't usually want that. They want something quick and clever and, and a sound bite and something that, you know, is a provocative quote and headline and things. So, they, you know, was it able to deliver satisfactorily those requirements? Sometimes, but they were on, not meaningful. Well, it's interesting that you mention, uh, you use the phrase Brat Pack, because that's one of the most famous celebrity interview slash profiles of the 80s when, that you were sort of associated with, even though you weren't there. And if my listeners don't understand, it was basically New York Magazine wanted to do an interview with Emilio Estevez, who was sort of being seen as the Orson Welles of his time. 
and <laughs> or so we would have you think. <laughs> well, he was uh, he was he was 23 years old, and he was directing a movie. Right? He was uh, he had written a couple movies. This and- was it was actually uh, I think he directed after this. I'm not sure. Right around that time, but that was an interview for Saint Elmo's Fire coming out, which is why he was with the New York Magazine reporter who, and he had the idea to take him out drinking with him and <laughs> Judd Nelson and Rob Lowe, and you know. Well, what do you expect? <laughs> well, as I understand it, um, and maybe this is just Emilio's vision, version of the story now, but he says that he was sort of – he didn't want to come off like a workaholic, sequestered person. So he called his friends, apparently Judd and, and uh, Rob Lowe, and he sort of performed this version of what he was like socially for the St. Animals Fire movie that you were a part of. And then it just became its own thing. I mean it's – I think everybody who was in that – probably including you and you were mentioned briefly sort of hated it but now it's like it's like the short shorthand for people who were important and young during that era i mean what's what's your relationship with that whole thing well that's what it has been is a relationship to that term because when it did come out um yeah i was not involved i mean i'm talked i'm disparaged in that uh, by the boys in that thing uh in that article i i actually read the article when i was writing this memoir, which I had, I'd been afraid to look at the article in whatever, 30 odd years. And I, I hmm. looked it up and read it again. And it's shocking how it, it bore no reality to what it became. Um, because it, it became this term to, like you say, lumped all these young, successful young actors who were in these certain movies, which I was in, uh, St. Elmo's Fire and Pretty in Pink, I think sealed my Brat Pack membership. But it was written as a very, you know, pejorative, disparaging term when it was came out. Because it was like, these kids are fucking jerks. It's entitled little brats. And hence the title. You know, I know some of us who weren't sort of a part of it and then got lumped into it felt like, what the fuck? I've just been blindsided. You know, so I hated it for years and felt it really limited me. But um, now it's sort of aged like a fine wine <laughs> or a wine anyway um, to like gallo um, but it, it aged into this sort of iconic term of we affectionately look back on our youth on you know and so people utter it in a different way than they did than they spit it back then I thought for years that it had really limited me but in a very real way I think it sort of enhanced a profile of me that I wouldn't have had otherwise, because in that group, you know, we were all greater than the sum of our parts in a certain way. Although it was all, none of it was real in the sense that we never hung out together. I never once went out socially with any of those people. I don't, I haven't met many of my Brad Peck brethren, you know, so, but it existed in the minds of people. And like I say, now people look back on it with sort of great wistful affection, I think. Well, if you ever want to start a podcast, Andrew, I feel like the, those are they're your co-conspirators. It would be interesting. To, I don't. Th- I've never talked to any of the uh, Brad Packers about what their feelings on it because I just don't socialize with them. And I didn't know them. I lived in New York, and I didn't really hang with them. I did movies with a couple, but you know, it would be an interesting thing because it affected our lives so hmm. profoundly. Last time we talked for this podcast, you talked about how you got into directing at the same time as travel writing, and they both are very story. Uh, oriented. And I think part of the train wreck of the Brat Pack interview is that the story it told was better than the truth. I'm subjecting you to the Proust interview, the Proust questionnaire, which I'll explain in a second. But um, I think part of what makes it interesting is that it's not, 
it's detached from any preconceived story of what it's supposed to be about. It dates back to the Victorian age when Proust was a kid, and they had what were called confession albums, which sort of the literate classes would pass around like high school yearbooks, and they had a set uh, amount of questions, sort of getting to know you questions, but also dig a little deeper than, than small talk questions. And apparently Proust, when he was 14, answered his questions in such an interesting way that when he was dead, this little confession album became very interesting. And then like the intelligentsia of, of France suddenly found themselves answering the Proust questionnaire in magazines in the 1950s. And in the 1990s, I think Vanity Fair started asking like Joan Didion and Arnold Schwarzenegger the Proust questionnaire. So I'm going to spring it on you right now, Andrew, if that works for you. Well, if it's good enough for Arnold and Joan, yeah. <laughs> All right. What is your current state of mind right now? <laughs> Complicated. It's vacillating, my state of mind. I, I Like we were mentioning earlier, I, I'm in a beautiful spot in the world. So I'm on a lake. I'm in the country. So I can go kayaking in the morning and look at bald eagles. And so I feel extraordinarily grateful and peaceful at certain moments and at other moments i am swamped like many of us i think we're just swamped with fear of what the fuck is going on and what will the future bring you know all my work was canceled like many of us so i have no work to, to fall back to to go to on a concept which is where i often locate myself right by by our work so i don't have that in front of me so my mind is left to its own devices and i'm very aware of its devices at the moment and so it's uh it's very active and not always in a good way not always in a bad way some wonderful things and you can really feel that it's sort of a pregnant time here too something's going to come out of this this whole time period that'll be wondrous you know and we just don't know it yet and i think you know I'm sure we'll get to some of the other questions. Just fear just is such a dominant thing. And all the media just are very, very, very invested in keeping our fear level really high. To me, I, I can't read or watch anything anymore. The, the sole objective seems to be inside fear. If, if, if there's good news, turn it into bad news. We mm -hmm. must continue, must keep the fear going. It seems like it's, if I were a conspiracy person, I would think someone is trying to do something to us. Well, this leads to a couple of travel-related sub-questions, actually. The first one of which is that you wrote about fear a lot, and that has been tied to travel um, and your travel writing in the past. So is this a new kind of fear, or is it more of fear of fear type thing? How does that – No, that... I mean it's the old chestnut. Fear is fear is fear, you know, and it has many incarnations and iterations and, you know, fear masks as many things – often prudence and good judgment and you know i i just think fear is fear and um i i feel like i'm a terrible flyer which is sort of you know not the best thing for a travel writer and somebody travels a lot but i feel like these past several months have been just like one long haul flight the mm. minute i start to relax on a plane if i feel a little bump i remember i'm on a flight again and oh i could die at any second and that's what it uh that's what this feels like to me a bit you know, and this is an obvious one because it, it exists. It's real. It's invisible. It's coming after you. It wants you. It's like, so, and I might give it to you or that other person might give it. It's just, it's that fear is having a field day right now. Are you keeping a journal? Because that feels like one way to, you know, keep perspective in the, in the present and then reflect on later. 
Yeah, I know that's what be, that would be the wise thing to be doing, wouldn't it? No, uh, I have not been. I keep I've been keeping little headlines of things and um, that happen, so that if I were to write about this at some point, I have little touchstones along the way. But I haven't been able. I've never. I've never been a journaler. I don't find it that. Uh, I don't find myself that interesting. You <laughs> know, it is how I started to travel, right, by journaling, but. Um, because when I was traveling, I think I mentioned this to you in our last time we chatted, someone suggested I write a journal because I used to travel extendedly for alone and I would get lonely and sort of lost on the road. And someone suggested I journal, which I tried and I discovered I was a very poor journaler right away. Uh, but I started writing travel stories instead, which seemed to tap into that same inner thing that journaling was intended to do. So, uh, but no, I have not been journaling for this. Yeah, I, it feels just like time is being bent and slowed down in ways that, that is comparable to travel. I mean, there's just so much newness and uncertainty that it feels like uh, there's a lot of travel habits that can apply to the, the present moment. Time is just so weird right now. I mean, I, I remember something I did this morning. I was like, was that today? Jesus, that, that's like a week ago. Um, but it is. It's like a month of Sundays, you know, except two months now of Sundays. And it's 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 not great. <laughs> Strange to think about. Um, you know, it's, it's funny. We were talking about fear. My, my, my eyes went down to the, to the Proust questions and one of them is fear. It says, what is your greatest fear? So given the context of fear is everything we see on the news, fear and anxiety is something we feel every day. Is your greatest fear changed by the current pandemic concerns or is your, is your great fear, greatest fear something more universal? Uh, both. Uh, I my greatest <laughs> I fear dying in a plane crash is what you think, but I also fear, and I've always feared more. I think than that is a sense of imprisonment. I always thought I pay my. I always I've joked. Look, I pay my taxes. I do not need to go to jail. I do not. You know, I fear imprisonment. And I I had the uh, the virus, and so when I was tested, then they said, that, "Okay, well, you're quarantined now. We will drive by your house every day, and." you know, check that you're there. You come to the window and wave to us. We'll call you when we're out front, which all seemed very kind of silly. But I was stuck in my house like we are, but waiting for that person to come every day to check in on me. The pressure of that was so disproportionate and so ridiculous and but so intense over me that this fear of imprisonment and that I cannot move and I am being monitored. That, that I have a, uh, yeah, that terror, that just terrified me. I also have a terror of rats, but you know, that's something else. That's very 1984. Right. <laughs> There's a lot of layers to all this. Um, yeah, I didn't know you had it. Do, do you know where you got it? Uh, no, no idea. Huh. So you are, um, you're upstate right now. You're not in the city where you usually are. Uh, and so I'm not sure where the answer to this question resides, uh, but I'm curious to know from the Proust questionnaire, what is your most treasured possession? You know... It reminds me of your book, actually, <laughs> um, your souvenir book, oh. um, because I don't, um, I don't really have, you know, and, and it's very self-congratulatory to say I don't have possessions that I care about, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. but I was trying to think, I don't, there's nothing, I, I, I'm, the possession I, I, I love my home that I have here in the country, so I suppose that's a possession, and I feel very, I love that, I feel like it's a home, you know, I've lived in New York for f almost 40 years, and I wouldn't, and it's my home, I guess, but I never feel home there, you know. Hmm. Um, but 
I also have a scallop shell from when I walked the Camino de Santiago to bring it into the travel realm. And, and I still have it when I walked it 25, 28 years ago. And it sits on my bookshelf. And it's one of the few sort of trinket souvenirs that I have of my. And I, I'd say if I have a, if, I, if my house were on fire and I were running out, I, I would like to grab that. <laughs> you know, it just represents something to me. And I can't believe I still have it. And I gave it to a friend of mine when he walked the Camino. I said, oh, here's my scallop shell to carry this with you. And he gave it back to me. When he came back, which I didn't know that I valued it so much till he gave it back to me. And then I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe I lent you this. <laughs> wow. Um, so uh, I, I'd say that. Otherwise, it's, I just have a lot of what's it that George Carlin, that old George Carlin routine. Your 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 stuff is shit and my shit is stuff. You know, I have a lot of stuff, <laughs> you know, but I don't know that I value really any of it. If things are in fire, would, would I miss anything here? Would I really miss anything? Huh. Yeah, actually, I might Would be. Would you? Well, I, I might be in the same boat. It's like my my house. I mean, it used. To, it's technically a double wide. It's technically a modular home, but I love it. My house in Kansas, um, and I, you know, if I could hitch it uh, onto whatever wheels are left and drag it away, that's what I would save from the fire. I'm not sure if there's one thing in the house. So, that's a, I, that's. I don't know. That feels just like a, like a more honest answer than any any one single thing. Is that um, there's an interrelationship with all these objects in life. Um, Although it is interesting that you have a travel relic um, that, that is something that came to mind. Oh, well, that just represents some, represents freedom to me yeah. and and independence. And you can do – and that was something I was so frightened of doing that it, it represents walking through fear that just was, you know. It's got a lot of good bob on it, as my yoga friends would say. Nice, nice. One, one thing um, – from the Proust question that, that cracked me up is uh, it has, what is your favorite color? It's such a little kid question. Um, wh but what is your favorite color, Andrew? Do you have one? <laughs> Blue or gray. And do you know why? Is it, is it a sports team or just uh, some sort no, of... No, it's just I look at that and I go, oh, I like that. <laughs> you know, do you have to know, do you have to have whys for color? Isn't that one of the beautiful things about color is that you can just go, I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Like when I was a kid, it was red and I couldn't have told you why I just liked red. And then later it was sort of forest green. Cause I like trees, you know, it's just, I don't know. I, I, maybe the charm of that question on the Proust questionnaire is that it's such an early predilection that maybe there is no explanation. It's just, you like what you like and that's it. Yeah. I like that. You know what I mean? It doesn't have any reason. It just is. Yeah. Well, what talent would you most like to have? I'd like to be able to draw, like pick up a pen and just, I can't draw a straight line. I like, I draw with my kids when they're little. I, I, I'm just, I, little, I draw stick men and they go, oh, that's, and they're like, that's as good as I can do. And uh, I would love to be able to pick up a pen or, you know, crayon or, or something and just be able to draw, you know, to draw. I'd certainly like to be able to play the piano too, but <laughs> that's not going to happen either. Um, but yeah, I think I'd like to draw. Yeah. Do you, do you speak any languages besides English? I speak terrible Spanish, but no, not not well. Jesus, that, that's so beyond my even wishing for it. Yeah, I, to be able to be a, a linguist, that would be, yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> yeah, well, you mentioned piano, and it's like I was so lazy about piano when I was young. I was also lazy about f learning foreign languages, and so my foreign language, that, that could be the talent I wish I had too. So. Oh, I, I want that one too. Yeah, I, I'll trade in, I'll trade in <laughs> drawing for that one. <laughs> right. What about regrets? Do you have a greatest regret besides not uh, being a better drawer and linguist? <laughs> you know, most of my regrets are uh, real estate related, but um, 
the answer is I regret I didn't stop drinking a few years before I did because I did a lot of damage to myself, my spirit and my career. And but, you know, so much of who I became came out of that wreckage that it's hard to if I were to regret it too much, I, I would have not gained a lot of the stuff that I've gained. You know, that Greek phrase, the crack vase lasts longest kind of I like so much. Um, and but I do regret, you know, I wish that I stopped drinking when I was 29. If I'd stopped drinking when I was 27, <laughs> I would think um, the last couple of years were not pretty in any regard. So uh, and I knew I needed to stop. So I, it's not like it was something that caught me up by surprise. So it just took a while to do something about it in a real way. Did that keep you going back to that phrase you used in the last conversation? There I am. Did that extra two years, for example, when you felt like maybe you were bottoming out? My phrase, not yours. Did you feel like you had ceased to see yourself in yourself? Um, or what? Oh, by, yeah, sure. When you're when you're that swamped in the mire of alcohol and self, 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 self. You don't. You're not. You're so into self, you can't see yourself at all. And. Uh, that was certainly my case, and it was, you know, and then the behavior is just lying and selfish and all those kind of things that is just, you know, and physically, I was just, I was not, luckily, I was so physically uh, wrecked by it, I couldn't go on, you know, but had physically I been strong enough, like some of these oxes that go on forever, I, I would have, I suppose, but luckily, physically, I gave out. Hmm. As an aside to this, uh, what, what's your real estate question? Is it like buying property in the Lower no, East Side? I, <laughs> no, I had an apartment in London. I had a flat in London that uh, I sold. I wished I didn't. And uh, I used to have a – I rented a home in Hawaii from a, a woman. And when she died, her children went to sell it. And had I scraped together all my pennies at that time, I could have bought it. And I always said, oh, I can't believe I let that go. <laughs> Somewhat tied in, maybe. Uh, when do you lie? This is a complicated question because, I, you know, I can lie about anything or I can actively not lie about anything. I don't know. I, it's Maybe I'm just evasive on this. I've tried to – I can lie about little th- – I used to lie a lot more, that's for sure. I'm able to lie less than I could. I, I don't know that I overtly lie as much as I will and hopefully again less, but f- – soften corners hmm. you know and i will soften corners when i think it will you know well when i think it'll make my life easier or not hurt you but you know that's my justification probably but it's really to make my life easier you know to avoid conflict i suppose i lie like here i told i didn't tell a couple people that i was positive for the virus who i had seen and i'm not sure when i got the virus or when so i didn't tell them I just disappeared and they turned out to be fine. It was a non-issue, but I just, I like chose to lie by omission to not do that. And I'm not sure why I did that even. Hmm. Did I think they would be angry at me? You know, um, but it often, whenever I do lie like that or lie by omission, which is often more of the lie, it always takes me back to the same feelings I had when I was drinking, which, cause when you're drinking, you're nothing but a liar, you know? Um, since all you're doing is lying to yourself and to people around you to cover up your drinking. So it brought me right back emotionally to that. I was like, Oh God, I don't miss this feeling at all. Hmm. You know? Well, you're, you're an actor and a writer and a director, which is, which is a milieu that I'm a little bit less familiar with, but they're all sort of, they deal with the fictive world in a sense. I mean, you wrote a young adult novel, just fly away. Um, and then you've inhabited characters that are not you, (laughs) 
Would you would you categorize that as sort of constructive lying, um, acting and, and making up stories? No, I think it's the opposite, isn't it? Um, because really you're just trying to illuminate some kind of within the risk of sounding terribly – you're trying to illuminate some kind of truth, you know, aren't you? And you just have the the – guise of you have a freebie you're able to do it under the guise of that it's somebody else but you're getting to reveal a deeper truth about yourself and then hopefully a, a truth that you identify with so it's a truth about human nature so that you can nod and identify and go, oh that's really good he's really good in that because he's identified he meaning i or whoever has identified that truth that you can relate to and so you feel less alone in the world which is why then suddenly you like that performance you, you know so i think it i i hope that good acting whenever i see good acting i don't think people are lying i don't think they're pretending to be somebody else they know they're not somebody else i think they're just revealing a hopefully a deeper emotional truth that they might not if they were just being themselves is that artistic truth interrelated, you think, or is it a different category of truth when you're writing a story versus when you're... It's the same thing. I think it's the same thing, right? Okay. I um, mean, and I'll also say things on the page that I wouldn't say in person. And even when I'm writing a memoir, right? Like I'm writing this thing about the Brackpad and I'll talk candidly about something on the page. It's like, oh, Jesus, I just said that. But it's <laughs> like, again, if you're asking someone for their time, you have, and you have to go there, whether, you know what I mean? You have to really it's an intimate relationship and you have to be intimate to have an intimate relationship. <laughs> but I do find it all, it's odd. I do find it often easier to write something revealing than to share it. Do you? Yes. I, I mean, the danger with writing something is, is it's permanence, right? Yeah. Um, right. <laughs> so, so, <something laughs> but then it loses its power over you. The minute you write, you release it. You realize, oh, that wasn't such a big thing. Hmm. It's like lying, you know, like we were talking, you know, you lie and then you come clean on, you go, oh, that wasn't that big. You know, um, and once it's released from you and it's out there permanent, it, it ceases to hold power over you. And that's great because, well, don't we want freedom all the time? It's not what it's travelers want all the time. It's just endless freedom. So Yeah, actually, I was just reading Mary Carr's Art of Memoir, and she was talking about— Oh, it's good, that, isn't it? It's really good. Yeah, yeah. She was, she was talking about um, sort of trying to be this waspy, literate person in her first tr attempts at memoir when she was sort of a rough-around-the-edges Southern girl— and it was such a relief to just say true things about her mom, you know, even if they sort of made her mom seem shitty. Um, turns out her mom didn't care and she felt a lot bitter, uh, better about it. So that's interesting. That's, that's a good point, I think. Oh, I learned a lot. I learned a lot when um, what it was in Joan Didion had some line. I don't know what I'm misquoting, but, you know, I don't, I don't know what I'm thinking until I write it down or hmm. something to that. You know, that if I want to know what I'm thinking, I write, you know, I, I my first travel memoir I wrote that longest way home was largely about, you know, trying to wrangle intimacy with another person and the need for solitude. And how do we wrangle these two things? And one, I, I vastly changed my relationship to both things when I wrote about it. Yeah. I tell my students this sometimes that writing is its own form of thinking. Um, and that you can think about writing, but thinking about writing is different than writing. And then the writing, the thinking you do when you write is actually a unique form. So um, that's a good well, that's point. very true. The writing is its own form of thinking. I never heard that. I like that. That because it's totally true. I can think about this thing, but then I write it down, and it's totally. And I'm not going to write down what I was suddenly thinking. And that's just a, usually the launching pad for what you end up writing, isn't it? Yeah. When you, when you write, um, do you have certain faults? This is a semi-Proustian question because he asks about overused words and phrases. Um, my own is that's interesting. I'm always saying it in this podcast, usually because things are interesting to me. But are there words that you overuse as a writer or just in real life? 
in real life, I use dude too much. <laughs> and, uh, uh, yeah, I say dude too much simply because I don't remember people's names often. And dude can have many actual connotations. And maybe because I like the Big Lebowski. But uh, I think dude's a good word, but I certainly <laughs> overuse it. And I'm much too old to be using dude now. Uh, when you're young, it's okay. Uh, and then I suppose my children, I, I say to them, or I used to, I've given up because they told me I said it too much is I need your cooperation here. <laughs> you know, Oh, that's a uh, great dad phrase. Yeah. Right. It's such a dad phrase. Yeah. And now it's, it's like, cause I never get any cooperation from my kids. So it's hopeless and pointless. And it just, you know, it just became a, a, a an expression of frustration. <laughs> I didn't know you were a Lebowski fan, by the way. Uh, I, I mean, who isn't? And is there anybody that you would respect that that isn't a Lebowski fan? Well, I, I'm tempted to ask you questions about Lebowski because I love that movie so much. But that would be another hour. It would be its own podcast. <laughs> so I'll save that for another podcast. But um, it's such a delightful movie. Yeah. Oh my God! It's so it's so good. Yeah, it's so uh. good. And, and even from a travel, okay, no, I'm not going to say it. I mean, it's it's a great LA movie, but I, I I can't go down that rabbit hole, Andrew, or else I I will seriously get excited about the Lebowski. When in fact, Proust, Proust, focused on Proust. Um, what is one thing you would change about yourself? I have a tendency to uh, to reside in stress that is not helpful to anyone <laughs> in my life, primarily me or my loved ones. And uh, I think it's an active thing when it's just stupid because it doesn't, it closes off room for anything that's useful or, or expansive. Is, you know? is that a lifelong thing or is that something that has come with adulthood? <laughs> that seems to have been something that's come with, you know, the last 25 years of my life. Yeah. I don't remember being young, feeling stressed, but maybe I didn't know that's what I felt. But I think, I think that's just sort of comes with financial responsibilities and responsibility for other people's physical safety. Okay. <laughs> well, besides height, what do you dislike about your appearance? I don't not like my height. I would just rather be taller. Uh, I, there's a, 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 a flap of skin under my chin that I would be like to get rid of. <laughs> I would say that would be the main thing that like, you know, you focus, you can focus on any one aspect of your physicalness and choose to dislike. And so I think that's where I, my dislike has gone to. I could have other weird things growing out of my ears and I would never see them. All I see is the flesh under my chin. So if the Deviate audience has any surgeons, we'll give you a free advertisement. But then, you know, it brings up the whole thing. It's like, but would I mess with that? Like, you know, I, I, I see rock star that I used to idolize. Not idolize, because I never idolized, but I, that I really admired. It was a big part of my life, it was music. And, you know, started getting facelifts and getting stuff done. And I'm like, really, dude? Hmm. Really? And I, I can't tell you how much respect I lost for him. Um, and it's not like, I understand how a lot of people in, in movies and whatever, cause their face is whatever. But I, I mean, I never think it looks good personally. I just think people look like they've had surgery. I don't, maybe I've not been able to tell a few times, but usually you can always tell. And I don't think it looks better. It just looks like I always, whenever I see someone had plastic surgery, I go, Oh, you don't love yourself very much. You know, that's where I go to. Wow, you must be really unhappy. You're that unhappy with yourself that you sort of. Anyway, what do I know? And I'm sure you can talk to me in five years. Maybe I'll have had that thing sucked <laughs> out and stapled up. Yeah, well, that that almost feels like a something I've gotten some perspective on from travel myself. That, like in India, there's a specific 
wise time of your life that is, that is old age specific, you know, uh, or in parts of East Asia, where I could be over idealizing Indian culture, but it just feels like they would never think to do plastic surgery because it's an honor to be old, you know, it's an honor to look old. So. Well, it's certainly not in our culture, right? So, uh, what uh, do you most value in your friends? I value the feeling of safety I get with my dearest friends. You know, and it's not that, you know, like my wife says, why do you like that guy? I go, he's, he's just my friend. You know what I mean? Hmm. He's not particularly trustworthy necessarily. <laughs> and trust is, of course, <laughs> you know, he's not particularly, but I, I have a sense, I feel safe with him. I just feel it's like, you know, maybe and I think there's a pattern of having people physically larger than me because my older brothers, you know, always felt safe with my older brothers. And that's what. Uh, but, I, yeah, I value that feeling of safety. And when I have that with someone, I forgive many, many other, <laughs> you know, transgressions or, or you know, character defects, uh, because. I often feel so alone out in the world, which we all do. And that, I don't I don't mean that in any bad way. I just often feel alone and that's often my own doing. Uh, but when I have that feeling of safety with people, I, I relax in a deep way. And then usually they can, because I feel safe in that way, they can make me laugh. And I, you know, anybody that can make me laugh is, you know, really laugh has my undying affection. Yeah. Do, do you find that are these people like from a specific time of your life? Yes and no. You know, you'd think, oh, are they all not Hollywood? None of them are Hollywood people, I have to say. Um, well, well, no, that's not true. There's not, a couple are. Um, but no, they're from, you know, I, most of them are very old friends. But two, I've made two friends in the last uh, few years that one very recently in the last six months and another uh, like three years ago that I was surprised at my uh, – advanced years of making new friends of people that I feel that way about. And so that's, uh, that's nice. It is. Yeah. Um, even in times like this, I've, I've like zoomed some old friends, you know, just because it's, it's nice. Um, when were you, I have had exactly one zoom conversation since this all began and I didn't enjoy it. (laughs) (laughs) I don't mind this. I have to say there's a Tom Stoppard line. I think he said that this is all great, this social isolation without social judgment, you know, or uh, or without social repercussions. I, I, I have no issue with a lot of the uh, isolation. I, I enjoy a lot of it. Are you, are you reading? Not as much as I would think I would be. Um, I reread a couple of my favorite books, which I thought, which was very comforting. I reread uh, Great Gatsby, huh. and I reread uh, a book called Stoner by John Williams, which is mm. probably my favorite book. Um, uh, so I reread those, and that was really. Uh, and I reread um, the book that got me to walk across the Camino de Santiago, uh, which I hadn't read in since I read it when it came out in 1993 or so, and that's what sent me walking across Spain. And uh, because I, I had the notion that I would walk across Spain again when this came out, because uh, like we said earlier, my work won't start up again for a couple months after mm. we're sprung, and. Because of fear, there's so been so much fear ever present here. And what I discovered when I walked across Spain was that liberation from fear. And I just thought, what a good time to go back and do that again. Mm-hmm. And I'm certainly like you are, I'm sure, just itching to just hit the road. And I would love to go see what, you know, Spain was very hard hit. And I would like to go to those small villages and see what's 
what's happening, what's happened. So I may, uh, next time we speak, have walked across. I hope I go. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I got all my maps again and everything. And I was like, it was very exciting to sort of sit and plot this again. Well, I hate to be too vocational, but that could almost be a book, you know, like the post-pandemic Camino um, could be. Is it is it Jack Hitt who wrote the book that you read? Jack Hitt's book, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, that, that could be your version of a Jack Hitt book that's part travel and part sort of where are we in history. That's what the best of travel books do, isn't it? They, they place you, they're a real draft of first-person history that's, you know, I think of value. Because history is always written by, you know these people that weren't there. And so you get sort of this first draft of something and sort of on a human level. And I think that's what Paul Thoreau's books, some of his books did very well. You know, they really capture a moment in time and place that uh, official history does not. Um, You mentioned Gatsby. I also read Gatsby during the pandemic. Oh, did Um, you? Yeah. How'd you like it? I I was delighted with it. It was, um, and I'm curious to know what you think, but I, um, it was the fourth time I'd read it. And it's like one, once per decade. I read it when I was a teenager, didn't remember nothing. And then each time I read it, I think I appreciate it a little bit more. I think because it's such an age-specific book where he's the narrator is sort of mourning turning 30, you know, um, and now I'm not even close to 30, you know. I'm on the other side of 30 by a long ways. And um, it just – actually, what I, it's going to be a podcast episode. I got some of my high school friends together because it's such an iconic high school book. And we talked about Gatsby. And just sort of how he reacted to it. But it just like the beautiful way he describes the women in some of the scenes. And then the way he describes those parties just feel like you're there, even though they're clearly sort of depressing parties. Uh, I don't know. What did you what did you make of it? Well, much the same of what you made. I, I thought it was I, I've read it four or five times, probably once a decade, being older than you. I can add a decade uh, yeah. add a read. Um, I find it better every time I read it. I. I marvel at how someone so young as he was when he wrote it, he was like in the late twenties when he wrote it, I think, and to, could be so wise, mm-hmm. you know, and, and he could just, the sum of the sentences, I would just stop and go, I would just, I'd be reading it and go, listen to this sentence. Oh, totally. And I mean, there was just like, oh my God. And the insights and the sort of between thoughts that he would, anyway, I found it beautiful. And, and it was really interesting is I didn't like a single character in the book this time. I didn't like huh. anybody. Yeah. I thought they were all selfish and feckless and, you know, too casual with their the preciousness of their lives. And yet I was I loved it. You know, I was, you know, yeah, it's a it's a good book. It is. And there's something very precise that he can like he can do a minor character. He can write it in half a page and you just oh, yeah. and they're just right there. You get them, you know, so it's it's amazing. I mean, um, he wrote something about talking about Tom Buchanan and he was writing, which really struck me about my own success of my youth. When you're talking about the Brad Pack, I can't remember that because it's so beautifully captured, but he was a man who had a certain kind of success at a young age that you never recover from. Hmm. Well, you, you talk about in, in your own book, in your travel book, you talk about that. That's one of the questions, right? Um, and so do you, have you recovered from your youthful success or is that still a texture in your life? Well, I don't. I don't know that. Yeah, I don't know that something. I yes, it's a simple answer, but it's certainly I'm who I am because of an outgrowth of what happened to me when I was young. I, had I not been successful in the way that I was successful and through all the brat pack and all that, when I was young, I, I would not be who I am now. I can't even fathom what my life would be like had that not happened to me. Hmm. You know, but it's. Uh, 
you know what I mean? You're going one way, something happens, and now you're going in this direction. And so I am an outgrowth of everything that happened from that. Yeah. And that's a, you know, that's not a good or bad thing. That's just like all of us are, you know. Um, but that was such a sort of public thing and profound thing in my life that, and I was not uh, particularly equipped to have that happen. Uh, the I'm certainly an outgrowth of it, certainly, and, and I ran from it for years, and then I sort of hopefully turned around and embraced it and incorporated it, and now it's just part of it's the stew. Well, this is almost a tip-in for the next Proust question, which is, when were you the happiest? That's a tough one, isn't it? I remember I, the two happiest days, three, I can say, I can point to the three happiest days of my life. Both my marriages, well, I have to say, were extraordinarily happy days because I was so surprised that I was able to be emotionally as present as I was and to let myself share love and receive it. Um, which is not something I would be that adept at doing in public. So those, for those reasons, and the, and more appealing probably <laughs> to the traveler and you, the day, there was a day when I was in, uh, Angkor Wat, when I, this is in the early nineties when, when I was in Siem Reap and Angkor Wat was just out in the woods somewhere. No one went, there was no, Siem Reap was just a, a little backwater village there were no hotels there and anyway i discovered anchor watt almost by accident i brought this kid's bike i gave him a dollar for the day and he gave me his bike and he point told me about these th places out in the woods these temples and things so i went there and discovered that anchor watt on sort of sense of discovery there and then came back in and had an extraordinary meal and met a girl and had a great night <laughs> and it was just like oh my god i'm so happy right now it was just such a wildly successful sort of day of discovery and freedom and and titillating fear and stuff because I had no idea what I would discover and what I was doing. And I just trusted that I would be okay. And, uh, so I look back on that as a sort of a pure happiest day of my life. Um, when was I happiest? And, you know, I, I think Paul Theroux has a, has a line where he talks about, he's always had the ability to know when he's happy. That's not an ability I've always had. And so I've tried to cultivate it in the last number of years. Um, but in hindsight, you know, we're often ha happy in hindsight. You go, oh, that was a great time. And then we forget all the anxieties and things that happened during that time. In your quarantine state, do you have a method for seeking happiness? I need to be physical. I, you know, I, I have first have to sort of burn off the, uh, you know, you wake up and uh, some days are worse than others, but you wake up and it's like <laughs> fear is at the end of the bed and goes, oh, good morning. I'm glad you're awake. I've been huh. waiting for you. I got a lot I want to talk about. <laughs> you know, and it's like, I need to go get physical. I go for a kayak ride or I go walk. Oh, there's a golf course right by me. I just go walk the golf course um, and just get into my body. I find walking ever since the Camino, I find walking a really, you know, that great line. It is solved by walking. I find walking to be a really way to just walk myself into myself. And suddenly my attitude changes and fear, fear abates and then possibility rises. And you're like, OK, here I am. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts, which, as always, is sponsored by Airtrex, which creates multi-stop and round-the-world flight itineraries for vagabonding journeys. More about their flight planning tools at Airtrex.com. This episode is also brought to you by Tortuga, who makes backpacks and backpack accessories for people taking long-term journeys. Go to rolfpotts.com Tortuga to get 10% off if you order one of their travel packs online. More about both of those sponsors, as well as everything that was just mentioned in this episode, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. 
And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviatedrolfpots.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. <laughs>